Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's the evening of the 19th of October, 1330. We're in Nottingham, and in the dark of the evening, the darker mass of the castle rises huge, grey and threatening on the granite of Nottingham's rock. In the gathering gloom, a very careful observer might notice some movement at the base of the rock. If he looked even closer, he would see a group of 24 young men gathering in the dark. He might have noticed that they were clearly noblemen, rich and well-clothed. At this point, our observer would in all likelihood have drawn his hood around his face and hurried off home as fast as he could make it. The young men were wearing swords. There was a mixture of excitement, anticipation, determination and fear in the air. These young men had murder and violence on their mind. If our observer had a dangerous level of curiosity, he might then have seen a door revealed by the light of a torch as the door swung open. If he'd had really good eyesight, he might even have recognised the face of the young King Edward by the uncertain light. With hurried whispers, the young men entered to the sound of the drawing of swords. Welcome to the History of England, episode 97, Above All Princes of His Age. These mysterious men on their secret mission have been brought to the hidden door by one William Montague, son of one of Edward II's courtiers. The young men with him were all drawn from the English nobility. Let me introduce you to some of them, because you'll be meeting many of them again many times. There was Edward de Bohun just 18, and the son of Humphrey de Bone, who had died with a spear in his bottom at Borough Bridge. Ralph Stafford, 
who was a knight with lands worth about £200, so not a loser, but not part of the rarefied heights of the baronage either. His father had died when he was just seven, and most of his childhood had been spent with his mother's relatives in the West Midlands. Now he was 29. He'd fought with Prince Edward in Scotland. Robert Ufford was a knight from Suffolk, 32 at this time. He'd fought alongside the Earl of Kent in Gascony and was a banneret in the young king's household. William Clinton was another household knight. We don't know exactly how old he was at this time, but certainly less than 30. He'd been part of the entourage that had brought Philip of Hainault over to England to marry the young prince. As it happens, the young queen had very recently given birth to Edward III's first son, by the way, the boy who would become known as the Black Prince. John Neville was a northerner. He had been on the side of Thomas of Lancaster and also caught up in the Earl's downfall at Borough Bridge. And then there was John Molins, a follower of William of Montague, who had been introduced to the young prince in 1329 and was on the edge of a colourful life, which would result in him returning to Nottingham Castle 30 years later as a convicted criminal. So, why are all these scions of the nobility sneaking around town? After all, if you are hanging around in a group of 24 young men in Nottingham these days, it probably means you're at a stag do, and you're probably in no fit state to be carrying a dangerous weapon. But no, they weren't there for a hoolie. For the explanation, we have to go back a bit to where we left it. The Tower of London and a horrified group who had just seen the blood royal spilt and the Earl of Kent's head hacked from his body. Mortimer had then gone putty. He was off the leash. Forty of his enemies had been arrested at the same time. His avarice had flowed over as he appropriated lands and lined his pockets with gold and filled up his boots with silver. His inner circle, his kitchen cabinet, were richly rewarded. Hugh de Turpington, Oliver Ingham, Bartholomew de Burgush, John Maltravers. At the same time, outrage and resistance had grown throughout the country. Richard Fitzalan had been discovered plotting an uprising and arrested. Rumours were rife about revolts being planned from the continent, and so the court was awash with spies, everyone was nervous, and no one could relax. Then, in October 1330, came the time for a parliament. Mortimer was as nervous as a cat, and he knew plans were being made somewhere by somebody. He also knew that King Edward wanted rid of him. That shameful peace with Scotland, the execution of his uncle, for Edward, Mortimer was now beyond the pale. But there was little he could do. Mortimer seemed to control and know everything. When Henry of Lancaster arrived for the Parliament, the tension moved up another notch. Mortimer was suspicious. He knew there was a plot being hatched somewhere, and he knew who Edward's close friends were. They stuck out like chapel hat pegs. And so he brought them in front of him, one by one, and interrogated them. William Clinton, Montague, de Bowen, Stafford, Ufford, and Neville. Montague... Edward's closest confidant was in fact in something of a panic when he came out of this interview. Next time Mortimer might not let him go. 
and Mortimer, meanwhile, had tightened up security still further. Nottingham Castle was locked up tighter than a gnat's arse. And it was at this moment that a man called William Elland approached Montague and told him about a secret passage that ran through the rock underneath the castle. And so, on the evening of the 19th, the young nobles gathered in the dark and waited. In the castle, Mortimer, Isabella and Edward were at supper, when Edward complained of stomach pains, and that he wasn't feeling well at all. So Edward went off to his rooms with his physician, and Mortimer and Isabella gathered their advisers, Turpington, Ingham, Burgersh, and Richard de Monmouth, the same squire who had escaped from the tower with Mortimer all those years ago. They withdrew into their private chambers. But Edward was just messing with them. When it was good and dark, he hopped out of bed, ran down to the secret door, drew back the bolts, and his friends were in the castle, rushing along the secret passage towards Mortimer's private chambers. Before they could get far, they were surprised, and there was a cry. There in the passage ahead of them was Hugh de Turpington. There were no flies on Hugh. He knew that twenty-four heavily armed young men weren't here for a flower-arranging contest. Hugh drew his sword and shouted, Traitors! It is for naught that you enter the castle. All of you shall die an evil death here. Gladly accepting odds of twenty-four to one, he charged. Mortimer had heard the shout and rushed out of his room, just in time to see Turpington collapsing under a blow from Neville's mace. Richard de Monmouth was next, and then an usher. Isabella herself screamed from her room, Have pity on the gentle Mortimer! Do not harm him! He is a worthy knight, a beloved friend, a dear cousin! Out in the corridor, it was already over. Mortimer had been overpowered. A quick search of his room revealed Burgersh trying to climb down the latrine chute. A socially awkward situation, I'm sure you'll agree. Roger's son Geoffrey was found and arrested. Edward III had seized control of his own throne. Now in the fullness of time, Edward III will completely reverse the trend that Edward I and his son had started, the trend towards the brutal judicial murder of all opponents. But he was going to make an exception for Mortimer. Mortimer the Regicide. Mortimer, in all probability, the Edward's father side. Mortimer was hurriedly removed from Nottingham that night, and writs were dispatched, summoning the great men of the kingdom to London. On the way south, at Leicester, Edward was tempted to get the job done there and then, but his friends wisely told him to stay his hand and do it properly. Mortimer was held for a month in the Tower of London. He was walled up so that he couldn't escape, and interestingly his room was right next door to Edward's. So you have to wonder if Edward didn't nip next door from time to time for a bit of innocent gloating. On the 26th of November he was led, bound and gagged, into Westminster Hall. He was not allowed to speak, and was accused of 14 crimes. No one felt the need for anything as tawdry as evidence. Everyone knew he was a badden, and he was duly found guilty. This was not a shock. No one was going to write in the strongest possible terms to their MP, or raise a petition. It was a gimme, a slam dunk of a verdict. Three days later, he was strapped to an ox hide, and dragged between two horses from the tower to Tyburn. 
It is entirely possible that he was dragged along the old Roman road that is now Oxford Street, at the end of which is now Marble Arch, near where the Tyburn gallows were to be found. It is very doubtful that the crowd were gentle. Mortimer was not a popular man, and by the time he arrived he was probably more dead than alive. He had just a few moments to admit that the Earl of Kent had been set up, and then he was stripped naked. The rope was slipped around his neck, and he was hauled off his feet until dead, and his naked body left swinging in the night air. Sick transit Gloria Mundi, as it were. Or indeed, sick Bisquitus disintegrate. So there we are. Edward III has entered the building and taken control of his destiny, in a very Edwardian idiom, actually. It has become traditional, has it not? for us to do a wee bit of historiography before we embark on a new reign, so let us do that now. We should start, of course, with our touchstones, the sources of all truth and light. I have to confess to being slightly disappointed with the Ladybird book of the Kings and Queens of England. I mean, here we have one of the quintessential figures of the chivalric medieval age, and we get the main thing being about the father of English commerce. I mean, I ask you, make an effort. Having said that, there is a very stirring picture that goes along with it. Still, in a sense, the page does sum it up. It has one sentence for each of the four big themes of Edward's reign. Commerce and the wool trade, war, the Black Death, and the growth of an English sense of national identity. And then there's the Seller and Yeatman, 1066 and all that. Edward III, the Romantic King. I'd say that's a bit more like it. Now, to my mind, we've arrived at the Middle Ages, capital M, capital A. You don't get any more middle, age-wise, than Edward III. He is the epitome of chivalry. Jousts, earls and dukes, beautiful damsels not necessarily in distress, hunky blokes with six-packs and nice teeth in shining armour, war and glory, the order of the garter, all that. But the other thing about Edward III is that his story ends in a dyed-in-the-wall, 24-carat, honest-to-goodness, no-poo tragedy. It's the story of two men, Edward and his son, the Black Prince, who for a while had the world at their feet, who could do no wrong, and yet both of them lived to see their triumphs turn to ashes. Their powers faded, their triumphs turned to dust. It's rags to rags in one generation. A story of great heroes who lived too long so that we can see their feet and see that they're made of clay. Nonetheless, as a kiddiwink, I ignored the 1360 to 1377 stuff, and focused only on the 1330 to 1360 bit, as you do. And I assumed that historians likewise would have been singing his praises about a man who, for a while at least, lifted England's reputation to the highest levels. And as far as contemporary is concerned, I was absolutely on the money as a 12-year-old. Here's one contemporary opinion from a chronicle called The Brute. Full gracious among all the worthy men of the world, for he passed and shone by virtue and grace given to him from God, above all his predecessors who were noble and worthy. The chronicler John Lebel, one of the most accurate of the chroniclers of the reign, consistently added noble before his name, and intended a great compliment by so doing. 
There was a little grit in the oyster. Most chroniclers criticised his court for licentiousness, and Edward for his lechery. And later, in Foissart's chronicle, you can begin to see the onset of a slightly more balanced view that maybe, possibly perhaps, the war in France and the dreadful Chevorsay was a little hard on the local population. And then, with the pain and the agonies of the failures in the Hundred Years' War under Richard, and the agonies of the Wars of the Roses fresh in the minds of the inhabitants of the 15th and 16th centuries, his reputation grew still further. He became a golden king, the symbol of a glorious lost age. When Henry V started his victories and campaigns, the old chronicles were reopened and discussed to compare his talents with those of his great-grandfather. Plus, of course, since Edward was at the root of both the Lancastrian and Yorkist houses, neither side had the need to criticise him. And the 17th century just added fuel to the fire. It was not just that he was a great warrior, or that he presided over a wealthy kingdom. It was a time of constitutional success as well. Joshua Barnes's book, written in 1688, represented Edward and his parliaments as working together for a common profit. It's interesting, of course, to reflect how much events of the day affect historians' viewpoints, since Barnes wrote in the year of the Glorious Revolution. However, he really went for it in a big way. Here's a little flavour. He was of quick apprehension, judicious and skilful in nature, elegant in speech, sweet, familiar and affable in behaviour, stern to the obstinate, but calm and meek to the humble, magnanimous and courageous above all the princes of his days. In summary, something of a superman. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. But then, horror of horrors, all this changed in the 19th century. The focus of the Victorians was on constitutional and social change. So suddenly, Edward III was a reckless warmonger. He gave away royal rights, which led to the War of the Roses. He preyed on England's commercial wealth to pay for his selfish pursuit of glory and personal ambitions through his foreign wars. In addition, of course, his love of sex went down really poorly. Bad boy. Here is that great Victorian, William Stubbs, historian and bishop. Edward III was not a statesman, although he possessed some of the qualifications and ambitions which might have made him a successful one. He was a warrior, ambitious, unscrupulous, selfish, extravagant, and ostentatious. His obligation as a king sat very lightly on him. He felt himself bound by no special duty either to maintain the theory of royal supremacy or to follow a policy which would benefit his people. Like Richard I, he valued England primarily as a source of supplies, and he saw no risk in parting with prerogatives which his grandfather would never have resigned. Ouch, and if you will, burn. Basically, what our Stubbsy is saying is that Edward was a man without a strategy. 
He wanted to fight for personal power and glory and just bled England dry to achieve it and did whatever was necessary to keep the peace at home and get the money he needed. And in the process, this lack of a coherent strategy meant he sold and bled away important royal rights. In the 20th century, opinion has become rather kinder. This has meant some rehabilitation, though of course not to the standards of hyperbole of the 14th century. So here's a chap called George Holmes in 1962. In Edward III, the Plantagenet line found its happiest king. Not perhaps the greatest. He was essentially a successful warrior who loved fighting and was good at it. OK, so that's a bit more positive, but it's essentially still pretty limited, and to a degree just puts a rather more positive spin on the line that Edward was basically a warrior and anything he did at home was just to allow him to keep on fighting. Which brings us to May McKeesack. She pointed out that we should not be minimising the size of Edward's achievement, whether or not he pursued a conscious strategy in his domestic politics. Here we go. Edward III succeeded where nearly all his predecessors had failed, in winning and holding the loyalty of his people and the affection of his magnates. He raised that dynasty from unexampled depths of degradation to a place of high renown in Western Christendom. So historians were now recognising the size of his achievement and that his motives and techniques might be secondary to the outcome. McKeesack again. For all his failings, it remains hard to deny an element of greatness in him. A courage and magnanimity which go far to sustain the verdict of one of the older writers, that he was a prince who knew his work and did it. At least part of this rehabilitation has been because modern historians have concentrated more on judging rulers in the context of their own time. One more and final quote from McKeesack on the Victorian historians themselves. Historians whose whole thinking has been conditioned by notions of development, evolution and progress sometimes find it hard to recognise fully or remember consistently that these meant nothing to medieval man. At very least, therefore, Edward is back on the A-list of monarchs because of his leadership skills. For whatever reason, it's recognised that Edward made a conscious decision to be a model of kingship and largely succeeded, and that as a result the 14th century saw a long period of domestic peace. The issue does remain, was he a mastermind who planned and thought his way through this, or did he simply react to events in a desperate effort to keep his show of chivalry partying and fighting on the road? Did he give away the rights of the crown without wreck or indeed feck? Anything keep the flag of war flying? Or did he consciously establish a genuine community of interest that maintained 50 years of domestic peace? Well, hopefully we'll find out, and I'll leave you to make up your own mind. So what was he like, this Edward? So far, in what I've read, i found him to be brave and bold, i found him to be far from stupid. You don't get the impression of a massive genius, but he was perfectly capable of having a plan. He was also hot-blooded and impetuous. Like pretty much all the medieval monarchs, he was conscious of his standing in life and his station and makes no concessions to that. He's not an egalitarian. You don't get any great impression of self-analysis or doubt. He could be utterly brutal. And his actions will condemn France to decades of hideous destruction. 
basically, the brute description doesn't seem far off. He's an affable, companionable, hail fellow well met kind of guy, as long as he don't step over the line. He's out for some fun, and has a big, bombastic view of who he is and what a king should be. And that means being King Arthur, no holding back, devil take the hindmost, foo, woof. That sort of stuff. Edward enthusiastically takes up all the ideas of chivalry and really throws himself into it. But we do have to ask again, does he do this as a carefully thought through matter of policy designed to build an esprit de corps after the dysfunction of his father's reign? Or just because it feels fun and fits in with his image of the way things should be? It has also become traditional for us to talk about the chroniclers who have painted a picture of the times for us. I'll mention a few key ones, both from England and the continent, since we're going to spend quite a bit of time over there. Geoffrey Le Baker was a cleric from Oxfordshire. His chronicon runs from 1303 to 1356, and he seems to have died in 1358. Le Baker is quite happy to be opinionated, and there's little doubt that he is a staunch and even jingoistic Englishman, and so needs to be taken with that in mind. However, he seems to be remarkably well-informed and accurate about a large number of events in the war. Adam of Muramuth held a number of church appointments, but was not a monk. He was a diplomat and frequent traveller to the continent and the papal court. He lived from 1275 to 1347, so his work is useful for the early years of Edward's reign, and particularly for his interaction with the Pope. Muramuth was a big supporter of Edward's claim to the throne of France, but perfectly capable of being critical on the way it was being run, so we get an interesting perspective from the viewpoint of an experienced diplomat. Thomas of Walsingham came from Gesware, Walsingham in Norfolk, and was probably born around 1340. He probably went to Oxford University, but it's the tradition of the Abbey of St Albans that he followed and which marks him out. He lived there as a monk and consciously saw himself following in the footsteps of the great previous historians like Matthew Paris, and his work would bring the histories of St Albans to a close. He was deeply conservative in outlook. His chronicles only really concern us right at the end of Edward's reign, since he starts with the good parliament of 1376. The other two chroniclers I'm going to mention are both from the continent. Jean Lebel came from Liège in the Brabant, modern Belgium, and lived from 1290 until 1370. Although he too was a cleric, he came from a noble background and was very much a churchman of the worldly sort. We have a contemporary vivid description of him, of his sumptuous richly jewelled clothing, his hounds, hawks and horses. He seemed more like a knight banneret than a churchman. His hospitality was legendary, and a retinue rivalling that of the Bishop of Liège accompanied him to church on feast days. He saw active service in his youth in both war and tournament. This was a joyful, pleasure-seeking type of man for whom writing verse was all part of the fun. Despite that, he's a reliable witness, and his chronicles of 1326-61 to are often used as a basis for other writers. Like any chronicler, he makes mistakes on occasion and has his own emphases at time, but basically he was very well informed and often able to use first-hand experience 
and he made strenuous efforts to be reliable and accurate. Which is more than can be said for the last chap, Jean de Foissart. Now here we have a genuinely good read. Foissart was a Hainalter and lived from 1337-ish to 1404. Part of his life was spent in the service of Queen Philippa and he knew the English court well. But he also travelled widely through the West and particularly France. His chronicles start off, therefore, being very sympathetic to the English, but gradually through the later years began to swing towards the French, possibly partly because his changes of employers. The main thing about Foissart, though, is that the history was to a degree secondary to the writing. He's there to write beautiful prose and entertain. The history was important, sure. But, a bit like a novelist, the first job was to write a good story, entertain, and not to let historical accuracy get in the way. He was clearly a patriotic Hainalter. He will be introduced at some point to a colourful bloke called Walter Manny. Now, our Manny really didn't need much bigging up, to be honest. He was substantially larger than life anyway, but Foissart made damn sure no one would miss him. If you're going to read just one chronicle, read Foissart. There's a really good abridged version I'll recommend on the website. It's an easy read, and it just drips with chivalry and daring do and all that sort of stuff. He's also deceptively sophisticated. Despite revelling in the deeds of these great men, there's a thread of disapproval of the misery they inflicted on the ordinary man. The first year of Edward's majority, as it were, gives us a good insight into his character and some most welcome changes to the flavour of English politics. The 17-year-old faced some pretty substantial problems. The ship of the English monarchy was seriously holed and pretty near to the waterline. The reign of Edward II had caused deep division and mistrust of royal authority. Mortimer's harsh and grasping rule had done nothing but reinforce the pain. The political classes were divided, Law and order, the king's peace in the countryside was openly flouted at all levels. As we've seen, since Edward I, a new viciousness had entered politics. Edward's first decade was not his finest, and was to present many failures and mistakes, as well as successes. But he at least started how he meant to go on. And he meant to start by healing wounds, not by creating new ones. The one real victim of the old style was visited on one man, Mortimer. Mortimer was to be the lamb that was to take away the sins of the previous regime, wash them all clean, so that they could start afresh. So immediately after the coup at Nottingham, Edward issued a proclamation. Here's some of it. The king's affairs and the affairs of the realm have been directed until now to the damage and dishonour of him and his realm, and to the impoverishment of his people, wherefore he has caused certain persons to be arrested, to wit the Earl of March, and he wills that all men shall know that he will henceforth govern his people according to right and reason, and that the affairs of his realm shall be directed by the common council of the magnates of his realm, and in no other wise. So here is Edward getting across two messages. Number one, it wasn't me, Gov, it was that Mortimer chap, it was him what did it. Number two, things are going to be different from now on. It's back to the good old days, the ones we remember, you know, the ones before the bad old days. So that was step one. Blame it on the other guy, start afresh. 
If this had been Edward II or the first, there would have been a bloodletting and no mistake. Edward III was determined that his would be a kinder time, and despite the many people his wars killed on a personal level, he held to this throughout. The ritual evisceration of political enemies was at an end. Like a new MD, of course, he did make some changes. He appointed a new treasurer, William Melton, and a new chancellor, John Stratford. But the rest he kept the same. And that's a big thing. Old Burgosh, last seen with poo all over his cassock as he tried to scramble down a loo, was kept on, at least for now, and later made Seneschal of Pontieu. Oliver Ingham, close confidant of Mortimer, was later made Seneschal of Aquitaine. Even the men who had killed his father were not pursued too hard, and some of them plainly forgiven. Edward was not averse to a bit of brutality, chaos, murder and despair when required, but by and large he preferred to heal the wounds, and one of the great successes of his reign was that he brought the nobility together around a common enterprise. It would take a while for him to completely achieve this, but in not butchering his enemies like his father and grandfather had done, he immediately set a new tone for the reign. Next week, then, we'll launch ourselves into Edward's first decade as an enthusiastic young man. I have some special thanks for the donators this week, to Leanne, Gleb, Timothy, Eric, Kevin and Dylan. Thank you very much. Your donations are much appreciated. Thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group. And indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.